You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, Northway Church. My name is Randy Bartley. Uh, If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to Genesis chapter 13? This morning's scripture will be chapter 13, verses 1 through 18. I have the privilege to read this over us this morning. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together. For they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were living in the the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let us not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. And if you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Look out, uh, Lot looked out and saw, that the enti- saw the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zoar was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden and the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west. For I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks at Mamre and Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of God. Well, thank you, Randy. Church family, good to see you this morning. Glad you're with us. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here at Northway. Glad you're with us. Grateful also for all of our 4 p.m. Cowboy fans that have felt inspired to join us this morning. Glad you're here as well. And, uh, but for all that are here, especially those who are watching right now in the overflow room in the 1115, just grateful for you, grateful for your patience. Uh, I can tell you that in the coming weeks, we have more parking that's coming right across the street. I can tell you that we've got a new building coming, and I got Lord willing to tell you we got more church plants coming. So that means more rooms coming. So thankful for your persevering patience here in these days and, uh, and uh, being a part of this here this morning. Uh, you should already be in Genesis 13. If you're not, go ahead and turn there now. Should be a Bible in front of you somewhere underneath the seat in front of you if you are 
uh, need one. That's our gift to you. But Genesis 13, we're going to continue our study here in the book of Genesis, which we've talked about is not only the first book in the Bible, it's not only the origin of all of creation, it's most importantly for us, the origin of redemption. And that's the story that we're tracing throughout Genesis of God's promise to deliver a a savior for a humanity um, that has been marred by sin. And, uh, And we are looking at God's promise being unveiled. And uh, culminating here in Genesis to this character Abraham, of whom will be a central figure by through his line where that promised Messiah will come through. And uh, last week we left off by moving from what was one of the, probably the highs right out of the gate of the faith of Abraham when he was a idol, pagan worshiper, uh, false worshiper in Ur of Chaldeans, whom God Uh, reached out to and made a promise to and called him to come forth and go to a new land that he would show him and there that God would bless him, not only with descendants for a man who could not have kids, God promised he was going to have one and in fact going to have many descendants and one of those descendants is going to be the savior who will bless all of the nations. And so this great promise, we saw the faith of Abraham lock in as imperfect as it is, but begin to evolve and strengthen along the way. But then last week we saw that faith derail because one of the things that we know, especially as followers of Jesus, any new profession of faith is always going to be tested. And certainly the first test that comes along here was famine in this land. And so Abram packs up his family, heads out of Canaan and heads towards Egypt. And last week, as we saw, He unhooked his faith from God and turned inward to himself, what we are all tempted to do. When we feel like things are outside of our control, rather than waiting and trusting in the promise of God, we turn to manipulation and control so that we can try to bring this thing about on our own, and it failed miserably. And in doing so, it almost cost Abram not only his own life, it almost cost him his bride as well, his wife's life. And uh, But as we saw, despite Abraham's sin... And weakness, the promise of God remains unthwarted. Uh, In fact, the lesson from last week and the lesson that we're going to learn in all these weeks in Genesis, uh, as we read through these, um, we're not learning about just examples. We're not to look to the characters that are described in these stories as as, um, heroes for us. We're not to look to Abraham and go, let's learn from what he did good and learn what he did bad. You can certainly do that. But ultimately, we understand that the great emphasis in the book of Genesis um, and the story that specifically we saw last week is not, the emphasis is not on the sins of God's people, but rather on the invincibility of God's promises. Um, Even when Abraham gets in his own way, God's plan will still prevail. And that is of great encouragement to us, that God and his kingdom purposes will not be stopped And so as we saw at the end of last week, God did step in. He saved Abram and Sarai, his wife, from great tragedy. And now he has them leave Egypt and make their way back to Canaan. And that's where our story picks up here in chapter 13. I want you to see right out of the gate of what repentance and restoration looks like. Chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt. He and his wife and all that he had and Lot who was there with him, into the Negev, the southern desert there of Canaan. And Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far up as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. 
between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first, where Abram called upon the name of the Lord there. And so Abram now leaves Egypt with Sarai's wife, with Lot, his nephew, and heads back towards Canaan. And the emphasis in this passage in the first four verses is all about Abram's return. It shows him retracing his steps and going back to where his worship of Yahweh, his worship of God, first began. All the way back to where he had built his first altar and had called upon the name of the Lord. What this is, it's a picture of repentance. Abram recognizes that his actions in the previous passage were not in keeping with the faith that he proclaimed and the righteousness that he was called into. He had lost sight of the promises of God. He put his trust in himself and he failed miserably. And it's an interesting juxtaposition. Abraham, um, what we saw in last week's passage is he mediates a covenant with the Egyptians that is based on a lie. It's based on a lie and it involves him being willing to lay down the life of his bride so that he can preserve his own life. And the result is it brings about a cursing upon the nations, Egypt in particular. And that's a far cry from the promised seed of Abraham who will come one day, Jesus Christ, who himself will make a better covenant based on the truth. And in doing so, will lay down his own life so that he can preserve his brides. And as a result, will become a blessing to the nations not a curse. And so Abraham recognizes where he has failed. He's now heading back to where he last worshiped God and he's doing so as a restart, which is an interesting, almost verbatim of what Jesus's counsel was to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, who had left their first love. And Jesus' counsel was, you need to remember where you've fallen. You need to go back and you need to do the deeds that you did at first. And that's exactly what Abram is doing. And the same is true for us. When we get to those places in our life where we realize that we have drifted from the Lord, where we have chose to rely upon ourselves, our own wisdom, our own choices, our own strength, and we fail miserably at it, we're to return. We're to return. And God is pictured here as a loving father, willing to forgive Abram, willing to receive him back, and you'll see in a moment, is eager to not only restore Abram, but to double down on the promise that he made at the beginning, to bless him. For all this for his wayward son who would come home. And the same is true with us. I don't care how far you have drifted. You have never gone further than God's grace can reach. And he is always willing to receive you home. Is that we would just turn from our sin, we would go back to our loving Father, we would be restored, and then live out of the faith and the promise that was first given from the beginning. It's a great lesson for us, certainly. But now, Abram, that he has been restored, his faith is dialed back into God once again, I want you to watch a new challenge arise. You're gonna see this all throughout Genesis. When God makes a promise, threats are going to come. The first challenge or first threat to that promise was famine. And that's what happened in the last episode. I want you to watch the next challenge that comes here to this promise. And I want you to see um, how this plays between Abram and his nephew, Lot, who had been with him this whole time. You see this starting in verse five. 
And Lot, who went with Abram, he also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of of Lot's livestock, because at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And so we've got a case here, a good old case of family tension, family drama, one classic case of Thanksgiving and Christmas where everyone's trying to stay in the same house, there's not enough room for everybody, and everybody's on each other's nerves. That's what's going on right here. Only now it's between an uncle and a nephew. And I want you to note, both Abram and Lot are presented in this text. They're presented here as having a great amount of prosperity um, when it comes to their wealth and possessions. And now part of that is a good thing. God had promised to bless Abraham so that he could be a blessing to others. Despite the crazy circumstances of last week's passage, in God's sovereignty, God used it to actually bless Abram and his family. And so they walk into Egypt uh, originally with great famine and hardship, and now they are coming out of Egypt with great accumulated wealth. And note here, not only in the wealth of silver and gold and all the livestock, but also they're going to gain here servants that are given by Pharaoh to them to take with them. It's here that we believed Hagar is going to be added to this number. We'll come, come to her story here later. Uh, but we're also going to see even next week that 418 men or 318 men are given here. We see it in chapter 14. As part of this accumulated wealth, it's going to be used to serve the rescue of Lot. But in fact, I want you to note it's right here. This is the first time in your Bible the word riches is used. It's the first time in your Bible the word wealth is spoken of. The Bible never condemns wealth in and of itself. It simply condemns the poor stewardship of wealth, using it for ourselves rather than the blessing of others. Now we'll see in a moment whether it's used for that purpose or not. But for now, the challenge here to the promise of God is that as many flocks and assets as they've now obtained, there's just not going to be enough space to graze together between the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and now these two families to graze the land side by side appears to be an impossibility. And so Abram makes an interesting proposal in verse eight, Abram said to Lot, well, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is it not the whole land that is before you? So separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. If you take the right, then I'll go to the left. Now, I want you to note there's a couple of things that would have absolutely shocked the original readers who are reading this. Remember, we're not the only ones reading this. There was an original audience. It was the Israelites. Um, Some 500 years after this passage, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, just got rescued from Egypt. They had just been delivered, parted the Red Sea, walked through it, and God's law has been given. His word has now been recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Moses. Now, giving this text to them, and the original recipients would have read this. It's a very parallel account to what they had just walked through. 
delivered, coming from Egypt, about to go into the promised land. And they're reading this and they would have been shocked by a couple of things that they just heard in this story. One, that Abram gave Lot a choice in this land. They'd be thinking, what are you doing? This land was promised by God to you and you're about to go give it away? You're about to go give it away? You're the older uncle. You should get first dibs if anybody gets first dibs. Why are you giving Lot first dibs? But most importantly, what would have shocked them is they would have realized that this decision that Abram makes here to give Lot his first choice is actually going to come back and bite Abram's descendants 500 years later, the original readers that were reading this. As you'll see in a moment, Lot is gonna settle east near the Jordan River, down by the Dead Sea, what is modern day country of Jordan. That is not only where Lot will dwell, it's where he'll eventually, his descendants will dwell as well. Lot's gonna have two kids at least, two sons that we know of, one named Moab and another named Ammon. And 500 years later, these will be the Moabites and the Ammonites who in present reality, as the original recipients were reading this, were being attacked by the Moabites and the Ammonites who were trying to prevent God's people from entering into the promised land. So you can imagine, they're reading this going, what are you doing, Abe? You fool, you're giving Lot this land, his choice, he's going to take it, and these are our very enemies who are going to try to stop us from obtaining this land that God has promised. And so, but there's something about Abram that we need to note and learn in this decision. In his newfound repentance and renewed faith in God, he's no longer worried about trying to control the destiny of this land through manipulation like he did last week. He knows that God is in control of both when and how this promise of this land will come into play. So he doesn't have to worry about it. All he needs to do is be concerned with what is doing right by God's standard of righteousness. In this moment, Abram is not a man of flesh, he's a man of faith again. He is so free in his trust and his confidence in God's promises that he is willing here to lay down the land as an act of blessing in the same way several chapters from now he'll be willing to lay down his own son because he believes that God will accomplish his purposes if he'll just do right. Abram knows that only through God can he gain by losing. And that frees him up. It frees him up to be a peacemaker with his own nephew in this moment. Abram knows that he has been blessed by God to be a blessing. And with his trust in the unfailing promises of God, he can lay down his own rights and he can allow Lot to have first dibs. Y'all, that'll preach all day long right there. You and I who have been chosen by God, who have been blessed through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ with salvation, secured for all eternity. Your destiny is already set. It's already secure. So out of that security, we can open our hands up and simply now live and obey and surrender to God, trusting that he who has determined the ends will also sovereignly work through the means. And we can rest. Now, I want you to note, um, in the rest of this text, you're gonna see two completely different value systems uh, move forth here with two completely different paths that 
uh, lead to two completely different outcomes. And the point that we're meant to see in the rest of the text here from verses 10 all the way through 18 uh, is gonna be made explicit by two identical phrases that you are meant to not miss. The first one comes here in this next text. Look at the starting verse 13. And Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And in parentheses, this was before the Lord was gonna destroy that area, which is Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and he moved his tent as far as Sodom. And now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so Lot makes his choice and we are meant to notice that phrase, underline it. And Lot lifted up his eyes. We're meant to see that Lot's choice was based purely on the lust of his eyes. Just like Eve, when she saw that the fruit was good for her own flesh, just like Samson's life was defined by wherever his eyes took him, to Lot, the Jordan Valley, it looked like the Garden of Eden to him. And in fact, notice what it made note of in here, it looked like Egypt. The old story goes, even though you can take the man out of Egypt, you can't always take the Egypt out of the man. And the same is true with Lot. He's still got that Egypt abundance in him. And he's looking to the things of the world here. He knew it'd be good for him not only just to raise his flocks in the lower Jordan, but this would be a great place to grow his prosperity like the rest of the cities in that area. So there are some powerful images, by the way, and there's some foreshadows in this text about what is going to come from this decision that Lot makes First of all, I want you to notice, it says Lot moved east. It's not by accident, that's there. Um, he moves east while Abram stays west in Canaan. The theme of moving east is a dominant theme in the book of Genesis. To go east always indicates moving away from the presence and the purposes of God. And so you see it, Adam and Eve, they are taken out of the eastern gate of the garden. Cain is gonna settle to the east of Eden. Tower of Babel is going to be in the east, and now Lot is heading east. Even at the end of our Bibles, when Messiah returns, when Jesus Christ returns, he will come from the eastern sky. He will come through the eastern gate. He is coming from the east to the west. He is coming back to lead us back into the presence of God. And so that theme is here, but I want you to note the progression of where Lot will begin to settle. The text is gonna make it clear that Lot's drivenness by the lust of his eyes is only gonna get him closer and closer to danger, which in this story is the city of Sodom. Now, what is Sodom? We're gonna learn more about it in the weeks to come, but the author wants you to know uh, in verse 13 that the ancient city of Sodom, located most likely on the east side of the Jordan River, uh, the modern country of Jordan, down by the Dead Sea, this was a wicked and sinful place. 
specifically with the leading men of the city. They were fleshly, they were immoral in every way possible. They were anti-God. There was no limit to their depravity. Is it a place that in just a few chapters from now, God is gonna have to destroy because of the utter endlessness to their rebellion? It is hedonism meets materialism all rolled into one. It's like one episode of The Bachelor right here. And a man or woman of God has no business being there unless they are going to bring the promises of God there, the gospel, the good news. But I want you to notice the progression of Lot. That's not why he's there. In verse 10, he's gonna start kind of mid-Jordan Valley, starts working his way down. By the end of verse 10, he's moved towards Zoar, which is in order to be near Sodom. By the end of verse 12, he's literally on the doorsteps of Sodom. By the time we get to chapter 14, verse 12, he'll be living in Sodom. And by the time you get to chapter 19, verse 1, 25 years later, he'll be working in their city gates. He'll be an official representative of Sodom. See, Lot wasn't going there to affect Sodom as a missionary. He was going there to glean the wealth of the world. A journey that began with the lust of his eyes moves him closer and closer to danger. He looked at it, he lived near it, and eventually he's immersed in it. And that's always the progression of sin. See also James chapter one, when we see the sin and then we're enticed by it and then dragged away, carried away into it. We are meant to see here that Lot's life is driven by the flesh, by the lust of his eyes. Peter will actually describe what Lot was experiencing in Sodom. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, he says that he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, having his soul tormented over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now, God, by God's grace, God's going to rescue Lot from this here in the coming chapters. And Peter counts him as righteous. You're going to see Lot in heaven. He's a believer. But he was one who was carried away by his flesh and was tormented all along while in it. It's a tragic story. We're going to unpack more in the days ahead. But I want you to notice here the juxtaposition of Lot's choices with Abram's, starting in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look. From the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, then your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Did y'all catch that parallel statement? Verse 10, I had you underline. Lot lifted up his eyes. Now underline, underline verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, lift up your eyes. You are meant to see that. It is a distinct correlation between these two. Two men, two sets of eyes, but two different perspectives that will lead to two different paths resulting in two different outcomes. In the first scene, Lot lifts up his eyes by his own choice and he chooses for himself a life that is bent on the world 
and what that world could promise him. But in the second scene, Abraham is called by God to lift up his eyes. Not to the cities of the world and their immediate gratifications, but rather to a future city, a future land that is promised by God that he is to wait for. One man's eyes are filled with the flesh longing for a city built by man. And one man's eyes are filled with faith looking forward to a city whose architect and builder is God. Now remember, God told Abram in chapter 12, you're to go to the land that I will show you. He hasn't really shown him the full thing yet. He got a little piece of it and went to Egypt. But now following Abram's repentance and renewed faith, God shows it to him like a, like a great real estate agent here. God just has him walk the property. Go check it out. Do a little inspection. Go up north, south, east, west. All that's in front of you is what I'm going to give you and to give your descendants. And then God doubles down on the original promise made to him in chapter 12. For a man who cannot have any kids yet, one day, God says, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the grains of dirt that are underneath your feet on this land. Now, what does Abraham do with that promise? Verse 18, we'll wrap up here. He camps on it, literally. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So just like Lot, Abram moves and he relocates in response to what his eyes can see. But only instead of camping near the promises of the world, Abram camps near the promises of God. The oaks of Mamre are either referring to a grove of trees that are owned by an Amorite man named Mamre, or most likely it is yet another Canaanite holy site, just like we saw with the oak of Moreh back in chapter 12. And so once again, Abram is declaring in the face of pagan false worship of the Canaanites, this land belongs to Yahweh. My worship belongs to Yahweh. And it is here near Hebron where Abram will set up camp and wait on the promise of the Lord. Now church, we are meant to see two clear pictures here. One is a life of flesh with eyes that are looking towards the world and its promises. And the other is a life of faith with eyes that are fixed on the future promises of God. The first will lead to a life of compromise and eventual destruction. The latter will lead to a life of redemption and ultimate glorification. Now this text is asking a question that is demanded to be asked by its reader. And that is this, what are you lifting your eyes towards? What are you lifting up your eyes towards right now? I gotta tell you, this was especially important again for the original readers who themselves just came out of Egypt, are about to go into the promised land, but are being met by a hostile enemy who worships foreign gods and who's accumulated a lot of wealth for themselves. And they are gonna face the exact same temptation. Will we enter into this land like Lot? Or will we enter into this land like Abram? 
Will we look to the things of the world in our own choosings to build our own life for ourselves, or will we trust God that there's a future city, a future kingdom that far outweighs anything that we could settle for here on this human side? And that's the question. What are you lifting up your eyes to? And that question still remains for us in the world in which we live right now. Wherever God has sovereignly placed you, that same question remains. What are you lifting your eyes towards? In scripture, we're told that the eye is actually the lamp of the whole body. It's how we perceive the values of life and determine what it is we are living for. In uh, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives an interesting command in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves will not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus gives the command, don't spend your days seeking up treasures here on earth. Spend your days investing in treasures that will be in heaven. That's the command, but then he follows it in the very next verse with a real weird illustration. He just says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is actually darkness, how great is that darkness? That's an interesting story to follow up a command. Don't spend your time investing in treasures on earth. Spend your time investing in treasures in heaven. Understand where your greatest currency lies. And then he says, if your, lies, if your eye's good, then your whole body's gonna be good. If it's bad, your whole body's gonna be bad. In context, what are the eyes in this story of Jesus? It is our value system. It's the way, the lens by which we see the world. And they are determinative, your eyes are, of the direction and path that you will take in this life, of what it is you will live for. They are the lamp that both leads and guides you to what you have set your eyes upon. If your eye is healthy, Jesus says, literally the word there is unpolluted. If your eye is unpolluted, then your whole body is going to be full of light. You will know why you're here. You will know what the promises of God are for you and your means of living in this life will be determined by the the end that God has already secured for you, which is his glory, his kingdom, living in light of eternity. However, Jesus says, if your eye is bad, literally, if your eyes are polluted by the things of this world, that means your lamp has gone out. It means everywhere you walk in this life, you're going to be stumbling around in utter darkness, having no idea why you're here, no idea what's coming and what it is you're supposed to be living for, just settling for what's thrown at you reactively every day by this world, directionless. And therefore, Jesus says at the end of that text, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It never says you can't have God and money. 
but you cannot serve them both. You must choose this day whom your eyes will serve, either God or this world. Money and wealth is never the issue in either of these texts. It's how the eye perceives it and how we'll steward it. Church, I want to invite you this morning on the heels of Genesis 13 to lift up your eyes. I mean, truly lift up your eyes. Not to look upon the world for what it can offer you. No, don't settle for looking down. Look up. Look up to the heavenly city, to the new Jerusalem that has been purchased for you through Jesus Christ by him coming and living a righteous life and dying on a cross for you to shed his blood to atone for your sins so that you can be forgiven and made right with God. And then Jesus who rose from the dead three days later into the newness of life so that you too can be transformed from death to life, can be raised to walk in the newness of life, to give you new eyes to see so you don't settle for the weakness and sins of this world, but you, you fix your gaze upon the heavenly city and understand everything that we've been given here has been put on loan to us that we might steward it for the glory that is yet to be revealed. That's why we're here. I'd invite you this day to understand that one way or the other, you're going to live for what you see. The question are is what are your eyes fixed upon? May we see Christ and him lifted up on high. And may we rest in the unfailing promises of God to live in light of his kingdom and not ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text and oh, how we desperately confess we need new eyes. God, give us eyes to see. Eyes of faith, not flesh. Eyes that don't just see what's in front of us, but can look past it to what's coming, a day when all things are gonna be made new, to understand that this, this, this world is not our home. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. Oh, may us with rekindled faith surrender everything for the true city that is to come and steward what we have now towards that ultimate end. If there is any in this room who have yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ, oh God, today, might you give them new eyes to see, to turn from their sinful, wicked ways, to turn from their own trust in themselves and turn unto you, oh God, whose mercy is new every morning, that we might experience and taste and see that you are good, oh God, and give our lives to you. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m. and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.